Amen. Good morning. So I want to walk with the lectern today so I can read my Bible at all times. Can someone get me a drink of water, please? Is that all right? Can you get them? Thank you. We appreciate that. Cool. Well, thank you so much uh, for sharing those words that God laid on your heart. Uh, we're going to get into the Word of God this morning, and hopefully it's going to speak into some of what's been coming through the prophetic. Um, Dream Builders Part 4, we're now in the fourth part of our series, which is cool. And just to give you a heads up, we've got two more weeks after this Sunday, and then we're going to be getting people to sign up to be a Sunny Hill Dream Builder if you want to be a Sunny Hill Dream Builder. You don't have to be. It's not obliged. You can still come to church and not be a Dream Builder. But really, our ambition is to try and identify those who feel a sense of ownership over Sunny Hill currently and the Sunny Hill to come. Thank you. But you don't need to swag when you're carrying water. But that's cool. All right, nice. All right. Show off. Right. Okay, we'll deal with that later. All right, open your scriptures to Nehemiah which is page 467, if you happen to have the same Bible as me. Okay, just saying. It's around there, maybe, in your Bibles. Depending if you have size 72 font. I know as you get older, your Bibles get thicker because you begin to kind of expand your kind of font size. You know, I'm obviously still very young, so I'm kind of font size 4.2, okay? Very small. And I've got a little monocle in my pocket, which I can just read the scriptures with. Um, today, we're going to look at a character that actually speaks to what God has been bringing through the prophetic today. Somebody who had to deal with a crisis of sorts. Somebody who, who was facing a storm. Um, his name is Nehemiah. And I'm sure you've heard of his name before if you've been in church a little while. But it's not a character that we often speak about at church. But he did play a significant role in Israel's history. Now let me just give you the context of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was not born in Jerusalem. Okay, He was born in captivity. So he had never been to Jerusalem his whole life, yet his family line was from Jerusalem. So he had this kind of ingrained, embedded passion for the city of Jerusalem, but he had never been himself. So what's interesting about this is when he was in Babylon, he got wind that Jerusalem, the city, had been destroyed. Okay? It had been destroyed when the, the um, Israelites and they broke into Jerusalem and took people into captivity for many, many years. And Nehemiah grew up in captivity, experienced um, promotion within the Philistine Empire, but ultimately he had never been to Jerusalem, but he heard that the city, the walls of Jerusalem, had been destroyed. And because he identified Jerusalem as his home, this, this didn't sit well with him. This, this was like a crisis moment for him. Now, I want us to jump ahead in the story because it will kind of help where we're going today. So Nehemiah 2 is where we're going to start, okay? Um, and we're going to look at verse 11 and 12, right? Nehemiah, in this moment, is assessing the damage in Jerusalem. He is walking around Jerusalem and going, what needs to be done to this place? But look at what happens in verse 11 and 12, chapter 2. And imagine this is like a diary entry of Nehemiah's memoirs, okay? Helps us connect with it a bit more. It says this, so I arrived in Jerusalem. This is Nehemiah speaking. Three days later, I slipped out during the night, taking only a few others with me. I had not told anyone about the plans God had put in my heart for Jerusalem. Interesting thought here. Nehemiah, the context is he's walking around Jerusalem at night, assessing the damage to the city walls, right? And he's got a few confidants, a few friends, a few allies with him. But it says in verse 12 clearly, I had not told anyone about the plans God had put in my heart for Jerusalem. Okay, if we were to assess that word plans a little bit more, it actually speaks to vision. 
that God at some point had given Nehemiah a vision for the city of Jerusalem. Now, the reason this is interesting is Nehemiah had never been to Jerusalem until this moment. So he never saw it in its former glory. Jerusalem, this beautiful city on a hill with massive walls and this beautiful temple mount and all this. Nehemiah had never seen these places, these sites, and yet in this moment he's assessing the damage to the walls and he reveals something. I had not told anyone about the plans God had put in my heart for Jerusalem. The plans are vision. A vision of what could be, but not just what could be, but how it could be. And I just want to lift that just as a uh, connect it to us in a little while. We want to be a people of vision, don't we? A few, like three of us in the room. We want to be a people of vision, and I'll tell you why. Strategy flows out of vision. So if you don't have a vision for where you're going, the chances are you're not really going to go anywhere. Vision, in essence, is prophetic. It speaks to the future that you're going to inherit. You know, I think this is really important. It actually goes a lot further than just our local church vision. It goes to the vision we have for our family. It goes to the vision we have for our marriage. It goes to the vision we have for our friendships. It, 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 goes, it goes so far. Vision is everything because what it is is a vision or, or a burden or a conviction that God deposits in your soul that helps you strategize to end up where God is wanting you to end up. This week on Monday, my middle son Judah um, I feel like we're just at A&E every other day at the moment. That's how it feels, raising three boys. And Jerusalem was skating down at Slade's farm, and he fell off the hut. Judah, what did I say? Jerusalem. <laughs> it's been a, I didn't sleep well last night, just saying. That's what we call him, Jerusalem for short. Hey, Jerusalem, do you want some uh, black current Jerusalem? We're just so holy. And obviously, we've also got Jericho on the front row with us today, which is great. And we've got Bethlehem and out in kids' work at the moment. But Judah, um, he, he was scooting, and he fell off the half-pipe, right? And he clonked his head really bad. Uh, it, was, it was brutal. It was horrible. And um, I was videoing it up until that point, but I put the phone away, and I said, Judah, we're going to go now, because uh, it's Monday night. is mine and Louise's hangout night. And I thought, I need to get back. And uh, Judah just wanted to do one more. And it's always the one more, isn't it? It's always the one more. I regret it so much. I was like, if I'd have just made him come with me in that moment rather than being a really kind dad and just letting him have all the fun. And he conked his head. And I know what you're wondering. Was he wearing a helmet? Obviously, I don't need to go into that answer, do I? Of course I don't. Come on. I'm a great dad. All right? I don't need to address that answer in the room right now in the moment. But clonked his head. And I, generally in my house, I don't know how it works in your house, but I don't attend to that stuff. And I'll tell you why, because I feel like I need to go to the hospital if I go. Like, if I pick up a bag of bones, if I go and I see blood, I need to sit down. Like, I had more gas and air. When Louise was in labor, I had more gas and air than her. I was, I was not coping, okay? Um, and in this moment, Judah's just, like, dazed on the floor. And I'm almost cautious about going over and discovering what, what's happened to him. Because I don't really want to find out. I don't really want to look at the side of his head because it looked pretty brutal. And, and so... I think I break all etiquette when it comes to kind of uh, first aid because my, my immediate response isn't to go, Jude, Jude, are you okay? My immediate response with any child is just to pick them up and put them back on their feet. Does anyone relate to that? Come on, be honest. Thank you, Matt Jackson. That's good. That's good. No dad awards for us. But, but essentially what I want to do is almost jump past this moment and just try and force everything to be okay again. 
you know, by putting him back on his feet, come on, let's laugh it off. <laughs> let's tickle you. You know, let's, hey. I remember actually, incidentally, when, um, when I was growing up, Adam, who's our Ferndown campus pastor, he was teaching me to play golf in the back garden. And uh, he was stood behind me and had his driver and these kind of foam balls in the back garden. And I swung the club round and I absolutely smashed him on the back of the head. Knocked him out clean on the floor. Not, he was out cold on the floor. And me and my sister just went up and just started tickling him because we just like thought, he's got to be okay. He's got to be Unfortunately, my mom saw it. She says, get off him, get off him. Um, but it was in this moment where Judah kind of, I pick him back up to his feet and he's like, Rah! like that moment where it just all kicks in. There's silence for a minute. And then it's like the realization ah, and the shock. And it's, it's horrible because then you've got everyone in the, the, the skate park thinking, he's an awful dad right there. That is a bad dad. And so you're saying to Jude, come on, Jude, let's get to the car. And then you can cry. Let's just get to the car. Let's just walk to the car. I'm just leveling with you. This is what it's like. All right? I won't say I'm the world's worst dad, but when it comes to first aid matters, you don't want me on duty because I'm not good. It doesn't matter what it is. Like two weeks previous, Caleb cut his leg open in the garden. I couldn't even deal with it. I, I was just like, Louise, you're going to you're gonna have to address this because I can't even be in the same room as him as there's blood floating on the floor. But Judah, uh, I, I get him up, and, and, and he's brave, Judah. He's, he's kind of quite resilient. And so he's like saying, uh, you know, he's so kind. He's like, I haven't ruined your Chinese tonight, have I? And I'm like... <laughs> yeah, it's sweet, isn't it? It's so sweet. And in my head, I'm thinking, oh, don't worry about that. But in my head, I'm thinking, gosh, I hope not. Um, <laughs> be really good if you haven't. But I know mom's not going to cope with this, okay? Um, she won't be happy with me, so maybe we won't get date night tonight. Maybe we won't get Chinese tonight. She's not going to be happy. So anyways, I get into the car, and then it's this terrifying moment, kid you not, where he says, Dad, I, and it's, it was freaky as. He says, Dad, I can't see anything. Yeah, it was brutal. It was brutal. So I'm like, what do I do? What do I do? So I ring Louise because I thought I need to give her a heads up that I'm coming home with a broken child, okay? I, I just need to put it on a radar. So I'm like, Louie, Louie, Judah's not, and Louise is always quite calm in these moments. She says, like, well, I'm sure we'll be fine, Dom. I said, no, Luby, he's not good. He, he's saying he can't see. But she says, of course he can see stuff. It'll be fine. Anyway, we get him in, and he couldn't even see our faces or anything. It was, it was horrible. It was horrible. For about 15, 20 minutes, we were, well, I was. I was freaking out. Louise was freaking on the inside, but she was being a lot more measured and calm on the outside, which apparently is helpful for children. But I was like, oh, my God. I was like, boys. Get in the room. Come and pray for him. Lay hands on him. I'm like, Caleb, Judah, Caleb, Zeke, come on, pray. Getting them praying and everything. I'm like calling down fire from heaven. I'm like, seriously, Lord, can you heal Jerusalem? <laughs> I mean, Judah. Can you heal? Can you heal Judah? Can you touch him right now? And, and, you know, over time, within about 20 minutes, half an hour, his vision was restored. Um, I'm not a doctor, but I do have Google. And I think what had happened is his brain had just got rattled in his head and it was kind of just recovering. That's the kind of the scientific kind of diagnosis of the whole moment, okay. And uh, we did take him to hospital for a bit. Um, but ultimately, there was this moment, and I was thinking about this, it was terrifying. These few minutes where he had no physical vision. It's a terrifying prospect. Because I'm thinking, what if it doesn't come back? What if that doesn't come back? What if he has to live his whole life with impaired vision because I took him to a skate park on Monday when when Louise was saying we should have just stayed home and played board games. It would have been horrendous. But I was thinking about this. I mean, praise God, Judah's absolutely fine. He's recovered, back at school, everything, absolutely fine. Kids do these scary things. Okay. Um, 
But I was thinking, <laughs> my kids do anyways, I was thinking like most, I wonder, and I don't want to make it too spiritual, but I wonder how many Christians live without vision, live without spiritual vision, live without clarity of foresight, live without an awareness that God is calling them to something more, something greater. And because we've never had it, we don't really ever miss it. And I, I was thinking in this moment, I, I could have broken down in tears because I was freaking out. Uh, but, but praise God, his vision came back. But how many Christians go through life living just within the confides of reality, never dreaming, never having vision for anything more, anything greater, ever being used by God in a more meaningful way? You know, I think there's this sense that, like, God is wanting us to awaken our vision. And if we've never had vision, to actually receive vision. Because the scripture says, Paul says, I don't just live by sight, but I live by faith. That it's faith not according to the things I see, but it's according to the things that I sense in the spirit. And actually, as we give our lives to Christ, there is this sense that we are empowered and we are given a, a vision, a spiritual sight that surpasses our physical sight. It's why Christians, I think, in life should live with an edge. I honestly think that. I think Christians should have an edge in their family, should have an edge in their parenting, should have an edge in their marriage, should have an edge in their employment. Why? Because they have spiritual vision, because they can see what God sees. They can see what God is doing. They can sense that God may be opening something up. And I think, like, what's really interesting, just to level with you, is, like, last year, I feel like coming out of COVID as a pastor, there was a sense that shock and adrenaline kind of just surged in, and me and Louise, we kind of just, we got things happening, and we got things going, and we got things doing, but then as soon as that passed, and we kind of got back into normality of church, it was like we just, our vision had gone for a season. We were just kind of robbed of that sense of, God, what is it you're saying? What is it you're doing right now? And we were just like, by faith, just going, okay, God, we can't see right now what it is you're doing, but Lord, we're going to continue to trust in you. And then it settled and slowly vision came back to us. But there was a sense that for a season that we'd experienced vision and then vision kind of just diminished and then vision came back. But what I want to say to you is maybe you've never had vision at all. And maybe it's time to get vision, or maybe you did have vision, but now you no longer have vision. And I want to look at this moment, because Nehemiah 2, verse 11 and 12, we see Nehemiah has this uh, uh, deposited thing in his spirit from God about plans for Jerusalem. Now, when did that happen? When did he get those plans? That's what I want to look at. So go to Nehemiah 1, verse 2 now. Check this out. This is Nehemiah speaking again. It says, Hananiah. One of my brothers came to visit me with some of the men who had just arrived from Judah. So this is happening before the thing we just read about. I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity. So Jerusalem now was now home again to some of the first returning Jews. And he inquired how things were going on in Jerusalem. Verse 3, they said to me, things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. Let me read that again. Things are not going well. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The walls of Jerusalem have been torn down and the gates have been destroy, destroyed by fire. Now, I just want to lift that for a moment and apply it to you, if I may. Like, I think often we, we go through life 
in a cruise control autopilot approach where we don't make regular assessments of our relationships, maybe of our habits, of our behaviors, um, maybe of our finances, maybe of our work ethic. We don't make regular assessment of the walls, if you like, of our soul, the walls of our life. Imagine that your life is like a city. Imagine that. And there's different parts of that city, but then there is protection around that city, these fortified walls. And in this moment, what we're seeing, that Nehemiah is getting reports that these walls have been broken down, that the gates have been destroyed by fire, which means what? That now the city of Jerusalem is vulnerable to attack. It's vulnerable to the enemy coming and having a field day. And I guess if we lift that and apply it to us, if your life is a city, what conditions are the wall of your city in? What, what conditions are the gates in that keep the enemy out, that keep the presence of God in? These aspects. Because often what we'll do is we'll just go Monday to Friday, we'll bust the nut at work, and we'll do what we've got to do. Then Saturday we do our Saturday thing. Sunday, maybe we'll go to church, maybe we won't. And then Monday we start the whole program again. But when we make regular assessment, what we have to do is, okay, how are the walls of my world? And, and what's interesting about the Jerusalem walls, every part of the wall was different, had different gates for different things that was being built by different families. And I just kind of get this sense prophetically, like, okay, if the walls of my world are here, how is my marriage doing? Because actually sometimes what we don't realize is that the walls have been destroyed, but yet we're still living in the city. And, and everything is more vulnerable to attack. It's insecure, it's weaker. Or, or maybe over here, it's like, okay, well, how are my children doing? How is their walk with God developing? Because when we don't make assessment, ultimately all we do is we live on cruise control and we make no immediate assessment. And in this moment, Nehemiah sees that things are not going well and he says they're in great trouble and disgrace. And I think speaking to the prophetic words this morning, it's like when we talk about storms, which generally speak to this chaos and unpredictability, I guess it's like what storms are you facing? And actually to get quite particular about it and specific about it, why is there a storm in my life? Is it because there's a part of my wall that is broken? Is it because all of the walls are broken? Is it because there's been a gate that has been left open or a gate that has been destroyed by fire? Are you tracking with me? Like this, is, this is, speaks to the dream builders kind of mentality because dream builders aren't just people that just passively go through life but they live intentionally. That's what last week was all about when I spoke about the will and sovereignty of God, trying to bring quite a complex teaching and try and ground it to the best of my ability to help us understand, yes, the, plan, the purposes of God are unchanging, but his plans are unfolding. Therefore, our prayers and our behaviors really matter. And so in this instance, it's like as we make assessment of our life, as the walls of our world, as we make assessment of them, what condition are they in? Just to help you with a metaphor a bit more. How are things in our town in Paul? Well, things aren't great. How are things in our government? Great trouble and disgrace. What condition is our morale and mental state? Oh, man, we're torn down. Our gates are destroyed by fire. We're divided. We are vulnerable to attack. So much junk is coming into the nation. If that doesn't help you, let's get more personal. How are things going at church? You might answer, oh, things aren't going well since COVID. How is the mission going? You might answer, Dom, 
we're in great trouble and disgrace. How are the people? Oh, well, discouraged and torn down and vulnerable to attack. If that doesn't help you, let's get more personal. <laughs> okay. How are you doing? You might answer, Dom, things aren't going well. If I asked you, how is your marriage? You might say, oh, I'm in great trouble. If I asked, how is your relationship with the kids? You might say, my relationship's broken down. If I asked, how is your household? You might say, there is so much junk coming in. And these things are totally at odds with the future that God wants for us. These things can overwhelm us and drive us from our dreams. Listen to this. Responding to trouble and hardship the right way is essential to being a dream builder and flourishing in life and faith. So we'll look at verse 4. Look at Nehemiah's response. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days, I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. I did this a little while ago in a different context, but I want to do it again because I think it helps us understand how do we respond to reality? How do we respond to crisis and challenge? So I've got six profiles of people, all begin with I, because deep down I'm a Baptist, okay, just trying to get out. So six points beginning with I. But the first one is this. When it comes to crisis or hardship, are you an ignorer? Let me give you the profile of that person. You deal with your feelings and your problems, listen, by not dealing with them. That's how you deal with them, by not dealing with them. Ignoring the difficult reality absolves you of any responsibility to resolve it. And with the plentiful distractions on offer in the world, it's easy to not think about your problems. So maybe you go to TikTok or Instagram. Maybe you go to Netflix or Disney. Maybe you go to superficial relationships because what you don't want to do is actually get into the gritty, the gritty nature of dealing with problems. And so your response is to ignore it. So that's one option, okay? And I think often I'm that person. And I think most blokes are that person. <laughs> Thank you. I hear an amen to a brother. This is why husbands really hack off their wives at times. Because wives want to talk about stuff and husbands want to ignore it. It, it, it. it is almost biological. It's almost predictable. It's because like women want to share emotion and emotion for a bloke is like, a, get me out of this room right now. Like, tear, a, t a tear has been shed. Where are the... It's like, you know, when, you, when you're going into a challenging environment, whenever I go to church on mission in a challenging field, when I sit down, the first thing I assess is for the fire exits. Because I'm thinking, if, like, the police come in, if it's persecuted, or if maybe terrorists come in wanting to do harm, what's my way out? And the same can be done as well sometimes when you deal with emotional women. Or people, sorry, let me say humans. Emotional, hu <laughs> emotional humans. It's like, wait, where are the fire exits? Okay, boom. Because what, what, what my wife will generally do is she will bring to my attention something that I'm more keen to ignore. Which is why marriage is really great, actually. Because God knows wiring. He knows what we need. Men are typically pragmatic. And, and we'll, we'll, there's another man kind of profile here. And I, I've come up with these, so they're not going to be complete. They are quite flawed, I'm sure. But here's the next one, okay? If you're not an ignorer, maybe you're an internalizer. Okay, so in order to keep face, you process your feelings and your challenges by keeping them on the inside of you. Okay, because as long as you look together, that's the main thing for you. And it cycles through your mind and your emotions. Now listen to this, this bit's a bit 
annoying because this is so true. It cycles through your mind and your emotions, and eventually it will come out. Right? But how and when it comes out can be totally disconnected from the original grievance. <laughs> you get that, don't you? It's like, I'm annoyed at work with my colleagues, but I don't have the m like emotional maturity to deal with it. Okay, so I get home, and I offload on the kids. You know, or, you know, I'm a bit narked with my wife, but we don't have the depth of relationship to really navigate this frustration. And so I go to work and I'm harsh to my em employees or whatever. Like, it translates, but where, where you offload isn't where the original grievance was committed. Because you're internalizing it. And, and if you imagine your internal world like a bucket, it can only take so much until you just spill over. Okay, this is some of the human condition, I think. Okay, the next one is this. Couldn't think of an eye, that was much better, but the inappropriate offloader. Okay. Now, some of you will know these as well. And if you don't, you might be one. <laughs> okay. So, you deal with difficulty by wanting everybody to know just how difficult what you're facing really is. Okay. You'll tell anyone who is willing to listen. And this is harsh, this bit. Okay. I want to say it wasn't me that came up with it, but it is. So, I, I, I have to take the blame. You know, email me, I guess. Um, You'll tell anyone who's willing to listen as it gives you attention and in doing so, a sense of importance. It's brutal, isn't it? Like in, I've been pastoring now for like 15 years, or 2007, what's that, 15 years. Um, and these are the profile of pe different people I've met. Now, there's not one that's worse than another. But the inappropriate offloader, let me tell you, part of the problem is, is they don't have the strength of relationship with God to take it there. So they take it to people with faces. Because what they really need to do is pray about the problem, but in the absence of that relationship, they'll almost tr treat it like prayer, like, oh, you know, how's your day been? Oh, don't get me started. And, <laughs> you know, you're like, now, I don't want you to, I, I know when I say stuff like this, it's kind of dangerous because you're thinking, oh, I can't talk to Dom about that. I don't, like, I don't want you to think that. I'm just trying to, I guess, pull back the curtain on some of the human nature that we all carry in some way, and we all have in different ways, Okay. But, oh, don't let me get, you know, like, and it's so different to the internalizer. It's kind of funny because the internalizer, you know, they, they could have had an absolute crazy bust up with their wife in the morning, gone to work, got laid off by their employer by 11 o'clock, you know, run over their children's cat on the way home or something, right? And then you could say to them, how's your day been? And they'll be like, yeah, fine. <laughs> you know, however, the inappropriate offloader could have just, like, popped a tire on Saturday and it's like, oh, you won't believe what's happened to me this week, you know. It, and it is kind of comical because it, it is the human condition. Like I say, we, we all carry this because we're all humans, I think, anyways. Most of us in the room, we're humans. Um, but this is what happens is in an absence of a relationship with God or a healthy relationship with God or a better understanding of prayer, it gets offloaded in every direction that is willing to listen. Okay, then you've got the idolizer. And you deal with your challenges by continuously thinking about them, a.k.a worrying. Okay, you give them so much attention that your worship goes the wrong way. Your focus gets locked onto your problem and you struggle to see God in it. Because what's happening is your problem is becoming bigger than your God. And, and, and if you like, worry is a form of worship, only it's not going heavenward. It's kind of going cyclical. And, and you know, I, I often say this, that like, worry is like prayer for non-Christians. 
like they don't have anywhere to take it. So just in like internalize it or you know ultimately idolize it. That's where it gets to. And you get locked on the problem and it becomes God. And then it becomes the focus of your attention, which is what worship is, where you give worth to something or someone. But if there's a if there's a storm or a struggle and you are worshiping it because you're giving so much attention to it that actually I think it is guilty of idolatry. And then you've got the initiator, and I think some blokes are like this as well. Okay, you deal with your problems and everyone else's <laughs> by trying to find an immediate solution. You hate, does anyone know one of these people? No? Okay, just me then, right? You hate things outside of your control, so you try to stamp your authority on the problem with a fix that may or may not be appropriate. Yeah, a fixer. Absolutely right, a fixer. Sometimes Louise will come and she'll say, oh, Dom, you know, we've got this problem. And, like, I'll just throw out a thousand pragmatic solutions, in my opinion, and none of them may be right. But then when Louise is saying, no, it's not as straightforward as that, oh, for goodness sake, it is as straightforward. Just choose a solution. There's many there before you. Because, again, maybe speaking to potentially my emotional immaturity, what I want to do is a solution to the problem. I don't want to fester on the problem. And so, ultimately, uh, you know, I think this often annoys Louise, to be honest. Because sometimes I try to fix a problem that Louise doesn't even want me to fix. She's like, oh, I'm just talking. No, but there's a problem in there that needs to be resolved. Text the person now and tell them this, right? Uh, Dom, I don't need this fixing. Uh, oh, okay, well then, don't talk to me about it then, ever, okay? No, I just want a conversation. I just want to connect. Ah, da, ah. Come on, seriously. I may be getting too level here with you guys, but you know, I'm trying to express to you the, the differences that we have. And, and then finally, and this is where we all need to move to, okay? So all of us carry different measures of those five profiles, and there may be more as well. I'm not a psychologist. This is just from my limited experience. But this is where we need to come to, and it's the inviter. Okay, now listen to this. You understand the best way to navigate difficulties and emotions is to take them to God, Okay? And invite him to lift your burdens and give you vision. This in itself is a form of processing, but it's also a form of worship. Because surprisingly, God wants your inappropriate offload. God wants that stuff that's festering on the inside of you. He wants it. And he wants you to articulate it to him. He wants you to come into his presence. And I was talking to Caleb about this yesterday, actually, my oldest son. I was saying, what does your prayer life look like, Caleb? He said, you know, I pray most evenings. And I'm like, yeah, but you do understand that, like, you can pray about stuff that seems unimportant to everyone else. You know, if you're going to class and you're worried about something, you can just bring it to the Lord. Why not? You know, or if you're nervous about seeing this person, you can just bring it to the Lord. Anytime any time of the day, in any moment, God wants to receive and hear your concerns and your worries. The scripture says, cast your burdens onto him. Why? Because he cares for you. The inappropriate offloader does not exist to God. This is why it's really important. Most of us don't factor God into our processing enough. So we, we try to form solutions, or we try to bury the problems, or we try to offload them onto people, or we try to fix and find a solution in our own strength to our own problem. But all God wants us to do is to bring them to him in prayer. 
And, and prayer is not some self-righteous religious act where you have to look and sound polished. It's just simply, if you like, revealing what's going on on the inside of your soul to a heavenly father. And sometimes you feel his presence and sometimes you don't. So you don't even do it based on your feelings. It's just like this, okay, God, you ready for this? I'm about to open up and it's going to be ugly as. <laughs> I'm actually worried about this. I'm worried about that. I've got this person I've fallen out with God and I don't know what to do about it. Um, God, I've, I've got more money going out than I've got coming in. You know, I've got this tension with my boss who I've put in holiday and it's all really awkward. Uh, I'm not sure what to do. I've got my kids going to school and I'm worried that one of them's getting bullied and, and, and I've got, you know, this conversation I had with my wife and I just don't know how things are. I've got a conversation with my husband and I just don't feel like things are right. And, and it, it's, it's kind of amazing because as I begin to bring articulation to what's going in on the, the inside of me, it's like the healthiest form of processing. Because actually, everything that you're navigating needs to be processed, but it's so much deeper than processing. It's not just a mental exercise. It's a faith exercise. It's actually saying, Lord, all of this stuff is going on in my soul, but I actually believe you're the only one who can really help me. And actually, I only believe that you're the only one who can really love me for who I am. And actually, I also believe that you're the only one who really, truly, honestly cares and in that process now, what I'm doing is I'm making an assessment of my world. And what I'm doing is I'm responding the right way. I'm bringing it to the one who can give me a vision. I'm bringing it to the one who can speak life into my future. In Philippians 4, in the message version, listen to what Paul says. Don't fret or worry. Instead of worrying, pray. Let petitions and praises shape your worries into prayers. Interesting, isn't it? Letting God know your concerns, and before you know it, a sense of God's wholeness, a sense of everything coming together for good will come and settle you down. It's wonderful what happens when Christ displaces worry at the center of your life. I'm going to read that again. Don't fret or worry. Instead of worrying, pray. Let petitions and praises shape your worries into prayers. Letting God know your concerns. Before you know it, a sense of God's wholeness, everything coming together for good, will come and settle you down. It's wonderful what happens when Christ displaces worry at the center of your life. Unaccountable worry kills your walk with Jesus. Because what happens is worry, stress, concern takes up the center place of your life. And it becomes almost this insurmountable thing that you just can't get past. But you're just constantly living in a place of anxiety. But God says, actually in this moment through Paul, that as we come and as we, as we bring this to God and as we process our worry um, and our concerns in the form of prayers and letting God know our concerns, like actually what happens is I begin to settle down. Why? Because as Christ comes and makes residence in my soul, in my heart, in my life, in my city, it displaces worry. It's impossible to worship Christ and be fully abandoned and have a really worried posture. I know that may be hard to believe because you may feel that's at odds with your reality. But all I'm saying is, is like you can't have a bit of Jesus and a bit of worry. Now, I'm not saying that worrying things don't happen and your immediate thought might be concerned. What I'm saying is, is how do you respond to it? 
When the worry comes, what is your first response? In fact, this quote here, prayer should be your first resort, not your last response. It's the first thing I do. So, obviously, on Monday night, it's a silly little example. Judah loses his physical vision. I'm concerned. I have a little bit of a meltdown, okay? I was not internalizing it at all. I was not ignoring it at all. Louise was taking me aside. Dom, you know, if you get more stressed, he's going to get more stressed, okay? Okay, she's kind of coaching me through this. But then I'm like, okay, okay, God, we, okay, Caleb, see, come on, let's pray. Let's lay hands on. Because prayer can't be my last resort. It's not just a case of going, oh, my God, this is awful. Okay, the next day, it's so bad, right? We better get people praying. No, it's got to be our first response every time. Because what it does is as I come in prayer, it just robs my worry and anxiety a little bit of its power in my life. It just displaces it. It moves it out of the way. So how should I pray? And I've got three minutes to answer this prayer, to answer this question, right? Nehemiah, uh, and does the band want to come up? Because then I have to kind of definitely land on it. So Nehemiah 1, listen to his prayer, verse 4. When I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. So Nehemiah's first response was not to go to the city, was not to pick up a shovel, was not to build a team, was not to start rebuilding the walls. That was not his first response. His first response was to sit down and weep, okay, so to receive the emotion, and then fast and pray for days. He took it to God. He invited God into this moment. And this is the prayer he prayed. O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands. Listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people Israel. I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, decrees, and regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. Please remember what you told your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be honored. The people you rescued by your great power and strong hand are your servants, God. Oh, Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. I'm going to give you five tools, okay, that helps you pray as a dream builder. Okay, so here we go. The first. The first thing about this prayer is that it's real. It's real. It's not religious. It's real. It's raw. So all of these words begin with R again because I am a Baptist. I'm telling you, okay. Nehemiah's prayer was raw. It wasn't compartmentalized. It wasn't void of his emotions. It was totally emotional. He wasn't ignoring, internalizing, inappropriate offloading in the wrong direction. He wasn't idolizing his situation. He was inviting God into it. We see that in verse 4. When was the last time you cried before God? When was the last time you allowed your emotions just to be poured out before him? God is not looking for the polished explanation of your situation. He's looking for you. He's looking for your presence. He isn't looking for good sounding words and nice sentiments and really doctrinally rich ideas. He's looking for you. He's not looking for solid theology and sound doctrine. He's looking for you. That's what he wants. God, I'm struggling. You know, it's not like, oh, Lord, how majestic is your name in the heavens? principalities and powers will truly bow before you, Lord. It's, you know, it may be that, if that's the way you speak. 
But sometimes it winds me up when people start praying in King James language. Oh, thou Lord, I can't even do it. Like, like they've become William Shakespeare overnight. Oh, thy my precious Savior. You know, <laughs> thy is truly great and thou art awesome. You know, cool. If that's how you're going to speak, but make sure when you come to me, say, how art thou? Make sure you talk to me like that as well. God just wants you. He doesn't want a religious expression. Just, Lord, this is rubbish. Now, if you are posher, I'm not trying to tell you to be more common. I'm just saying, be you. Be you. God wants you. He wants you real. Okay, which is why sometimes I struggle with hymns because I feel I don't understand most of them, to be honest. Right, okay, verse 6, the next thing, is regular. Dream builders don't just pray when a crisis comes. They pray in the good times too. In James it says this, is any of you rejoicing? Pray. Is any of you sick? Pray. Is any of you worrying? Pray. Like in every situation, pray, pray, pray. And we read that in Nehemiah's life. Their prayers are consistent. They are persistent day and night, praying and fasting, because they understand, like the persistent widow in the Gospel of Luke, that persistence is powerful before God because it speaks of faith and dependency. It's like, God, you will be my deliverer. You are my deliverer. Okay? It's regular. Third one, this is really important in verse 6 and 7. Let's look at it for yourself. And again, if you watch the Sunday service, Sunday Live on YouTube, it's all on there as well. So look down and see me praying day and night. I confess that we have sinned against you. It's repentant. It's repentant. Repentance is a brilliant thing. Because what repentance does is it acknowledges the fact that, like, I actually make mistakes. And actually, maybe a lot of these worries that I'm contending with are my doing. So Nehemiah comes and he says, look, I've sinned. My family have sinned. The people have sinned. We repent. Repentance really is about aligning our hearts to God. It's about acknowledging the fact that we are messed up. So it's not about saying, God, I know you think I'm awesome. <laughs> but it may surprise you that I made a bit of a blooper last Tuesday. No, it's like, God, I have sinned. I am a sinful person. It's not a posture of weakness. It's a posture of strength repentance. I love repentance because it just reminds me that God's God and I'm me. That actually God is perfect, he's holy, I'm broken, I'm dysfunctional. It's repentant. You know, often we talk about the R word of revival, but the thing that precedes almost every revival in history is repentance. Repentance. It's a realignment to God. That's what precedes revivals. Okay, the fourth one is this, and this was a bit more tenuous, but I needed to say it. It remembers promises. <laughs> I've got to get the R in there, okay? It remembers promises. It's a dream builder's prayer. What I love about this is it's similar to last week. Nehemiah kind of references a promise given to Moses. But yet, God seems to like that, that Nehemiah comes and says, listen, you said this to Moses, and I'm receiving that for us. That's why promises are so powerful, because when we remember promises in our prayer, it gives our prayer something to undergird and overarch them. And then finally, verse 11, it expects results. Dream builders connect the dots between the results they're seeing and the prayers they're praying. We know that the prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. And we pray into the vision because we know that's where the power is. It's not in our ability to perform or work hard. It's a move of heaven. And so we pray with that in mind. I'm going to land there. There's a few more things I'd like to say, but that's really it. That's the essence, right? The 
challenge is this. Be an inviter. Invite God into your troubles. Invite God into your storms. Invite God. Don't ignore them. Don't internalize them. Don't inappropriate offload them. Don't idolize them. Instead, invite God into them. And the way we do that is by being real, by being regular, by being repentant, by remembering promises, and by expecting results, understanding that ultimately, if I want my kids to be godly, if I have a vision of godliness, then now what I do is I begin taking that to the, God, would you help me be the parent that's going to help my children to become godly and make godly decisions with their future? The problem is many people don't assess the walls of their city and they just continue living in autopilot and cruise control. My encouragement to you and my challenge to you today is let's not do that. Let's be intentional. Let's pray together. Let's stand to our feet and pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, this morning, God, that you're here with us. And Lord God, you are inviting us into your presence this morning. And God, I thank you, Father, Lord, that as we gather as your church, Father, you You love it when we dwell in unity. God, the scriptures say you command a blessing where brothers and sisters dwell in unity. And Lord, I just pray, God, that Father, this morning we would be unified with this resolve, Lord. Understanding, Lord God, that prayer changes everything. Why? Because of instead of internalizing and making us our own savior of our problems, we look to you to come and be our deliverer. We look to you to come and be our father. We come and look to you to be our savior. And so, Father God, I just pray, Lord. That over the next few days and weeks, Lord, I just pray, God, that individually you would challenge us, Lord, to begin to dream, begin to have visions, begin to assess the walls of our city, and then begin to bring them to you in prayer, to come and bring our concerns, to come and bring our worries to you in prayer, that, Lord God, we may move forward and not get stuck, or even worse, go backward, Lord God. We want to be dream builders who pray like it all depends on you. God, I thank you for your goodness, Lord. I thank you for your faithfulness. I just pray that you would have your way through us in Jesus' name. Amen.